to the sermon this morning. I just want to kind of give, uh, give you an update from yesterday. Our, our denomination, uh, the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, uh, we met for our annual uh, delegate session. Um, it's a time where we hear reports from uh, just from some of the different directors of, of uh, denominational ministries. We vote on things. There's a fly attacks me there. Um, Give you, I'll just give you kind of the 30-second update with, uh, with some highlights. Um, uh, we, we welcomed three new churches into the denomination. They were three church plants that uh, we now call them fully functioning churches. So it was a joy to, to welcome them into, uh, uh, kind of officially welcome them into that new stage, I guess, uh, being part of, of FEC. Um, uh, we voted on, on budget things. Uh, the denomination is in uh, real good financial shape, so that's a, that's a blessing there. Our, our FEC elders had, had uh, kind of reworked uh, our, our denominational position paper uh, as far as sexuality and gender. Um, it's one that's going to serve us real well for, for many years to come, and so that was approved at, uh, at this uh, yesterday at the delegate session. A um, couple things we can be, be praying for. We are, uh, they are the, the, the FEC office in Fort Wayne is looking to hire um, a director of church multiplication. It's a position they've had before, but it's just vacant at the moment, and so we can be praying for them as they, uh, as they search, um, seek and to try and find the person to, to serve in that role. Um, and then also, uh, one of the other things we voted on was another three-year term for our president, Rocky Rockle. He's served in that capacity for 15, 16, 17 years, something like that. Um, and uh, he's, he will now serve another three years, uh, but they will be his last three years. He said that uh, that will be the last term that he serves, so we can be praying for him in that term, uh, but then also as we as a denomination, kind of look ahead to that transition that's going to take place three years from now. So we um, seek to find another president for the denomination. Um, a lot has taken place in the 15 years that he's served in that role. Uh, we've almost doubled in size as far as numbers of churches. Um, financial things have changed. Uh, it, um, God has done a lot, he's, but he's worked through Rocky, and so we're real appreciative of that, and, and it'll be a change to have somebody... Um, step into his shoes when that time comes. So that's something we can be praying for um, over the next three years especially. So that's the update. That, that's all the business stuff that, that took place yesterday. Uh, I, was, I was reading a story uh, a week or two ago about uh, something that took place uh, back in, this was back in 2009, uh, as, as uh, at the time President Obama hosted his first state dinner. It was a dinner that he was hosting in honor of the Prime Minister of India. And, and there was something about that uh, state dinner that ended up being very noteworthy. And, and what was noteworthy was two guests who, were, who attended the dinner by the names of Tariq and Mikhail Salahi. And the reason those two individuals made news as attendees of that state dinner was, was really very simple. They were not on the guest list. They, they, they were not invited to the event, but somehow made their way past security and found themselves shaking hands and talking with 
two of the more powerful world leaders at that time. It's really kind of fascinating. Now, it's not like, it's not like they snuck past security without being seen. That'd make for a great movie, right? Some hidden doorway from like the 1800s that they found in the White House. And that wasn't what happened. They went through the checkpoints and things like that, metal detectors, all of it. But, but apparently no one ever consulted the guest list to verify that they were on it. I don't know how that happens in 2009 in the White House. It just doesn't seem like that would, that would uh, be possible. I'm sure someone lost their job over that, that whole thing. But, uh, but really, what, just what makes the situation unique is that there is this protected, secluded area that was accessed by two individuals who really had no right to be there. They were not invited. They, 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 were, not, it was, they were not planned to be there. It kind of makes me wonder where they sat, you know, like what table they sat at the dinner. They didn't, I don't know what a state dinner's like, to be honest, but if there's little cards with your names, I don't know. It's just fascinating that they were able to make their way into that secluded, restricted area. And, and the reason that I bring that up is, is because there's another protected, secluded area that, that we read about in the Bible. And this area is, was off limits to everyone on earth except for a single solitary individual. And in the Old Testament, where it tells us about both the tabernacle and the temple, the most holy place in the tabernacle, in the temple, was the location where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was the earthly location for the throne of God. And only the high priest could enter into the most holy place. And he could only go in there on the day of atonement. And he could only go in after he had gone through an extensive purification ritual. And this is what Pastor Tim was reading about in, uh, in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, it was, in a way, it was great. It was great that God's manifest presence was among the people once again. It was something that hadn't happened since all the way back at the Garden of Eden. But it wasn't ideal, right? I mean, I mean now the high priest got to be in God's presence there before the throne of God once per year. But I kind of wonder, what did the high priest feel when he was going behind the curtain there? Was he scared at all? I mean... I mean, if, if, he, if he had not done something correctly, it would have meant that he was going to die while behind the curtain. If he was not purified like he was supposed to be, it would make me nervous. I would think it would probably make the high priest nervous too. And for everyone else on earth who was not the high priest, there was no possibility that they would ever get to enter into God's holy, holy place, most holy place, and, and, and stand there before his throne. One of the things we celebrate during the Advent season is Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth, becoming flesh, that he might be the great high priest who doesn't just go before God, but opens the way for us into the presence of God. The Word became flesh, dwelled among us, and then through his life, death, and resurrection, he opened the way for us so that we might come before the throne of God. What, what used to be restricted is no longer to those in Christ. And I, if you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. I want, I want to read the verses that will, will be the theme of our Advent uh, sermon series this year. Um, it's found on page 
1003 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because of the work of Jesus, the great high priest, the writer of Hebrew tells us that we we can now draw near God's throne of grace with confidence. And and it's it's not just about a physical proximity to God's presence. But, but coming near to him speaks of, of a relational component as well. It's not, it's not just standing before a throne. It's, it's confidently drawing near to God in relationship, conversing intimately with God. What a, what a promise that is. I mean, what a wonderful promise. It's a great blessing that we have that in Jesus the question that I want to ask is, what, what does that really mean? What, what, is it, what does it look like to draw near, to approach God's throne of grace with confidence? That's what we're going to be looking at over these next four weeks. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, I think, gives us hints of this at other places in, in his letter. And so what we'll do over these next four weeks is study those hints, study those hints and, and kind of examine how they, how they tie in with, with the rest of Scripture. And, and as we do that, my, my hope is that we'll understand a bit more confidently, a bit more why, why we can confidently come before God's throne of grace and, and what that posture looks like specifically. So, so for this morning, we're going to talk about drawing near to God's throne of grace with a confident posture that is faith-rooted. Faith-rooted. So, so turn with me, still in Hebrews, but to chapter 10. And, and the writer here, again, he's painting a picture of approaching God's throne, approaching the most holy place. But this time he brings faith into the discussion. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 19. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he says there, we can draw near to God with confidence, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And I want to talk about what does that mean, full assurance of faith. I want to first talk about what, what does not give us full assurance of faith before we talk about what does. Full assurance of faith is not in ourselves. It, it, it's not in anything that we've done or not done. Now, now we, can probably, we can probably all think of a time where 
we approached some kind of situation with confidence because of, of effort that we had put in ahead of time. So, uh, so maybe if you're a student in school, maybe studying for a test and, and you, know, you walk into the classroom confidently because you put in the time and effort to study for it. Um, or, or, or perhaps it was work done on a project at the office, and so you, you walk into the meeting room confidently, right? The work that we've been done, that's been done, it's going to be good. Um, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's uh, been dating a person for a long time, and you're you know, ready to, to kind of pop the question and have, you know, propose, and you've got everything just all set, and so you go into it, you know, with confidence that everything's ready to go. Um, or, or maybe just re- kind of thoroughly researching a situation, and you know, you know, you know, you have to have a conversation with someone, and so you're ready to go, and you, you come to it confident that you'll be able to persuade them of the direction that that they ought to take. In all of those settings, it, it, that, that's faith in our own work, right? Faith in our own preparation. Our confidence comes from ourselves, things that we've done. The confidence with which we approach God is not rooted in faith in ourselves. At least it shouldn't be rooted in faith in ourselves. If our faith is in ourselves, then it's misplaced. Paul reminds us different places in his letters. He reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, we're not saved by works. In Romans 3, he says that, that no one's righteous. And even for those who've been made righteous by Jesus who've received salvation in Jesus, which which we'll talk about in a moment, our faith still should not and cannot be in ourselves, in our good deeds that flow out of that salvation. Our, Our confidence comes not from our faith in our praying or our Bible reading or generosity or kindness or service or our study of God. Followers of Jesus can and do honor God through those things. But that must never be the basis for our faith in coming confidently before God. Those things are all enabled and empowered within us by the Holy Spirit working in us. If I approach God with my head held high because of things that I've done, then, then my faith is not rooted in the right place. It would, it would be shown to be rooted in myself. That's a faith that comes from a place of pride, to be quite honest. A, a proud person is, is, is one putting their faith in themselves. A proud person is one who comes before God and boldly demands what he or she believes has been earned. Um, the Bible tells us God opposes the proud. Uh, that's not how we are to approach God. That's not where our confidence should come from. If, if, if I approach God's throne in that way, I'm not going to find it to be a throne of grace, as, as the, the writer says, but, but rather a throne of judgment. I mean, we, we must not forget who sits on the throne. The one who sits on the throne is holy and mighty and omniscient. And under my own efforts, there is nothing within me that makes me worthy to stand before him. Nothing. In fact, if, if I'm going to approach God's throne in that way, with faith in myself, then it shouldn't be with confidence. It really should be with fear and trembling. And I, think, I think one of the ways we can discern if we're coming to God's throne with faith that's rooted in ourselves is, 
is, uh, is to maybe ask the question, of, uh, do I have an attitude that says, well, God, you owe me, or God, I deserve, or, or, or God, I don't deserve, you know, if, if we come before God in, in that type of way, I think those statements reveal a faith that is in ourselves, and that can't be where our confidence is. Our, our, our faith cannot be rooted in that. It must be, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, it must be in Jesus, our great high priest. And so I, I want to look again at those uh, verses in chapter 10. But before we do, have you ever read an, an official uh, resolution from a governing body? You know, even something like from the, the city council in Eureka. Uh, if you've ever read one of those, the, the format uh, is generally something like this. At the, at the beginning, there, there's multiple statements of fact that are listed. And, and quite often, it's, they, they start with the word whereas. So whereas, you know, whatever, whereas, whatever. And then following those statements of fact, one or more statements of action which are usually began by the word resolved. So whereas this, whereas that, resolved this, resolved that. It's just kind of a common way that, uh, um, that, that those official documents unfold. The resolutions of action flow from the statements of fact. So I want, I want to reread those verses in Hebrews chapter 10. And the words whereas and resolved aren't in there, but... But still notice how the same kind of format uh, is seen there. So, so back to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the facts that lead to the statement of action, those facts are given in those first three verses, 19, 20, and 21. We can enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. He's the one who prepared the way for us through his flesh. Those are the facts that the writer gives to us. Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross is the sacrificial offering made in our place. And through his blood, we are cleansed from our sinfulness. His body pays the penalty and his blood washes us clean. That's what the writer is, is saying there. Were it not for those statements of fact, were it not for Jesus, we could only approach God both guilty of sin and stained by sin. That's all that it would be. Our actions and our nature would give us no confidence in drawing near to God if it were not for those statements of fact. And I think, I think some of the best ways to let this reality really sink deep within us is just simply to listen to, to some of the other Holy Spirit-inspired words in Scripture that speak about this. And so I'll just read a few verses here. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Um, John writes in 1 John chapter 1, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul writes in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We've heard, many of us have heard those, those verses lots of times in our lives, right? Uh, many of us believe those verses and indeed have faith in what they proclaim. But whether that's the, the, the thousandth time that you've, you've heard those words or the first, we do well to ponder them. Really think about what that is, what that is telling us. If this truth about Jesus dying for my sins and your sins is, is new to you, then, then I want to affirm this morning that they're true words, that they really are statements of fact. And through putting your faith in Jesus, including his death and his resurrection, yeah, you can have confidence to stand before the throne of God. That's what we're talking about this morning. You can find it to be a throne of grace because of Jesus. Uh, maybe, maybe you're a student like I was. I think back to when I was in uh, uh, junior high. And I, you know, I'd heard lots of times as a young kid those statements about Jesus, and I believed them to be true as a young kid as well. But then one day in junior high, you know, the Holy Spirit just impressed deep on my heart the reality of that message and the incredible implications of it in my life. And I'm still learning what all of that means, but, but there, it was just something significant that, that day in junior high for me. It became real to me in a way that it, that it wasn't before. Or, or maybe, maybe you need to hear the same message this morning that I need to hear this morning. Maybe like me, you need to remember that your ability to approach God's throne has absolutely nothing to do with your deeds. Nothing at all. I, I need to be reminded that while, while I seek to bring glory and honor to God through my deeds, I do. Those actions don't do anything to make me worthy to approach God. My, my confidence in coming before God must be a posture that is faith-rooted in Jesus, the work of Jesus upon the cross. It has to be there. He's the great high priest. And he doesn't just go before God on my behalf. He does do that. But he also pays the penalty for my sins and cleanses me from sin and thusly makes a way, welcomes me into God's presence. I have to remember that daily. I don't go before God because of me. I go before God because of Jesus. Our faith has to be rooted in Jesus. And, and, and again, we, we've talked earlier about how our, 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 our deeds don't allow us to come before God. Jesus' actions make a way for us, but, 
But we also need to spend some time talking about how our actions don't negate our ability to approach God's throne either when we are in Christ. Maybe we don't struggle with thinking that we can earn our way into God's presence, but we must also ask ourselves if we struggle with thinking that we can sin our way out of God's presence. And, and, and those are two different things for sure. So, so turn, turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 4. And, and I want to read verse 16 again. I think this, this verse just speaks so powerfully to us. Verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we've already covered, hopefully quite thoroughly, that anyone who confidently draws near to the throne of grace does so because of their faith in Jesus, their Savior. Since that is the case, listen to what this verse is telling us. We can draw near to God. Again, we only can draw near to God because of Jesus and receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. In our time of need. What's the writer referencing when he says that? Our time of need. What I don't think he can be referencing is our need for salvation in Jesus. We're only able to approach God's throne of grace to begin with because we've already been given salvation in Jesus. Or maybe said differently, we're not, we're not drawing near to the throne to find salvation. It's, it's salvation through Jesus that allows us to draw near to the throne. Or, or if you kind of think about the picture with the curtain and Jesus' death on the cross, the curtain in the temple wasn't ripped in two from top to bottom so that Jesus could forgive sin. Jesus died on the cross providing forgiveness of sin, and so the curtain was ripped from top to bottom, showing that we are now able to come before God. So, so this time of need must be referencing the needs of Christians, those who've already experienced salvation in Jesus. Why would Christians need to find mercy and grace at the throne of God after having been cleansed by the blood of Jesus? That, that's really the question, right? When we need mercy and grace is when we've fallen back into sin in our lives, isn't it? I mean, isn't that, that, isn't that the time of need there? Yeah, we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We've been made righteous through him, but we've, we've not yet been completely sanctified in these fallen bodies on this fallen earth. And so we're still susceptible to temptation and sin. And, and every person that's been a Christian for more than about 20 minutes knows that, right? Knows that our, our, our sinning does not stop in that moment of salvation. Uh, our daughter Melanie prayed to Jesus a few weeks ago asking for him to save her from her sins. And, I, you know, Macy was one of the ones that I think really got Melanie thinking about that. Macy's um, uh, excitement to tell Melanie about it, but... Uh, uh, but Melanie did that, and one of her first questions after, after doing that was about whether she would no longer sin anymore. I mean, she just prayed this prayer, and she, she asked, so, so am I not going to sin anymore? And we had to tell her that, yeah, you're forgiven of sin without a doubt, but you're probably not going to stop sinning until heaven, until you're 
we didn't use the word completely sanctified, you know, for a six-year-old, but, but that's, you know, that's, that's what it means. And, and you know, what I pray that Melanie grows to learn and, and, and what I pray that myself and all of us understand from this passage is that Jesus' salvation is bigger than all of our sins, every one of them. It covers everything. Our faith in him must lead us to know that we cannot possibly do something that would close off God's throne of grace from us once we've gone through the curtain, once we've gone through Christ. We can't. We can't do it. Even the sins which we commit after putting our faith in Jesus cannot bar us from God's presence. Now, now I'm not trying to downplay anything. Those sins are an affront to God. They are committed in rebellion against him, and they have consequences, and so we, we ought to take them seriously. But in our time of need, the, the, those times where we most desperately need mercy and grace, the blood of Jesus allows us to continue to confidently draw near to God's throne of grace. I mean, what a blessing that is. What a blessing. And you and I both know the last place we want to be when we're guilty of sin is in God's presence, right? I mean, we know that feeling. The inclination to hide, right, to not want to be in the presence of God after sin, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. We see it there for the very first time. But the very first place we need to go when we are guilty of sin is to the throne of grace where we need to be. And we can praise God that even after sinning, we can still draw near to him through Jesus. And again, it's not confidence in ourselves. It's not faith in anything that we've done. It's confidence that is faith-rooted in Jesus. And I think this is one of the things that, that as a church body, we need to be consistently reminding each other of, don't we? In the midst of sin or in the immediate aftermath of sin, Satan shoots those lies at us. I mean, he tells us what we've done this time is too big. It's happened one too many times. Um, our privilege to come before God is now null and void. I mean, that's what Satan tells us. And, and we need to be reminding each other of the truth of Scripture. We need to be reminding each other that Satan is a liar. Those are lies from him. And, and so I, I want to do, I don't know who needs to hear it this morning, but when Satan tells you that you won't find mercy and grace in God's presence anymore, he's lying to you. He just is. In God's presence and at God's throne of grace, through the blood of Jesus, is exactly where you need to be. So don't, don't let Satan convince you to not go there. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're, we're, we're going to continue to unpack this. We're going to talk about hope next week. We're going to talk about um, love. We're going to talk about joy. But, but it all starts. It all starts with that faith in Jesus. It's faith being rooted there. You know, as we think about this Advent season, Jesus, he didn't just come to earth to experience what it was like to be human. He wasn't just curious and it wasn't some vacation to kind of see what it's like to be a human being. Jesus came to earth 
for a purpose. And that purpose, in part, is to open the way to God for, for us if we choose to accept him. He came into our presence so that through him we might go confidently into God's presence. That's the incarnation. He came into our presence so that we can go before the throne of God in his presence. And, and so in the midst of all that comes with the Christmas time season, let's not forget that. You know, that there's the phrase, the reason for the season. All right, and you probably, uh, we got a sign in our house, Jesus is the reason for the season. And yeah, but, but more accurately, the reason we celebrate is not just that Jesus came, but what he accomplished when he came. I mean, that's the reason for the season. He came to make a new and living way to God's presence. Opened for us through the curtain, the writer says, through his flesh, which he took on beginning as a baby in the manger. That was his purpose. And so then, with faith rooted in Jesus, we can draw near to God's throne of grace with confidence. How awesome is that? That is a blessing, and that is, it's life-changing. It can and it should change everything about us. Through faith rooted in Jesus, we have that blessing in our lives. And so we'll, again, we'll, we'll kind of continue to build on that as, as the, the weeks go by, but that's the foundation of it all, faith in Christ. So would you stand with me? Let's give praise and honor to God that he came, became human, opened the way for us. Let's pray that, uh, that we would be drawing near with that confidence that comes from faith in him. So let's pray together. Jesus, we, we, our minds especially during this season go to, to you coming to earth, becoming human, but not just as a baby, then living your life, offering yourself on the cross, and, and opening that way for us. It's, it's seen tangibly through the curtain and the temple tearing. God, we, we can come before you and find grace because of Jesus. I praise you for that this morning. I thank you that we can ground our faith in something firm like that. God, were it not from that, we'd be lost. And so I praise you this morning. I I thank you for all of us here this morning that, that, that have been blessed to have you work in our lives in such a way that that we've put our faith in you. And we know that that's a, there's an initial component to that, but we know that's a lifelong thing as well. God, we're continually growing in that, seeking to trust you more. So would you guide us in it? Would you remind us that that curtain is always torn because of Jesus? We can always approach your throne of grace with confidence and find mercy and grace. God, in those times where Satan is subtly or screaming at us that we can't go to you. Would you remind us of the truth? Help us to remind each other of that. And God, we're thankful this morning that we can find mercy and grace in your presence.
As we come now to just continue worshiping you through song, would, would you impress that reality deeper and deeper onto our hearts and minds? And God, as you do that, may it just overflow in our worship of you. Worship through singing, but worship through all the other avenues of life as well. We thank you this morning. We give you the praise that you deserve. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.